The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, if you have your Bibles or your apps, John chapter 5 is where we find ourselves this morning. John chapter 5. You know, it's fun to uh, enjoy the people you work with. I love working with these guys. They do a great job. And uh, really to lead us to worship week after week is a great and high privilege we have of being with them. And so I'm grateful for them. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. So, is this in verse... Let me find it in my Bible. I'll just switch pages. There we go. John chapter 5, verse 16. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he did these things on the Sabbath. Jews are persecuting Jesus because he did these things on the Sabbath. How many of you have ever served in a jury? Let me see your hands. Served in a jury. About half of us, it looks like. And so I've had that privilege uh, several times, actually, in the years we've been in Bell County and the city of Temple. About 15 years ago, I was chosen to serve in a jury panel downtown Temple. So it's misdemeanor, small crimes, small things that take place there. Usually tickets. In fact, uh, they select two juries of six people, and you rotate in and out between cases. And uh, there were six cases that uh, I sat in on that day. Four of those were appealing traffic tickets, and the other two were not. One of the two that was not appealing a traffic ticket was quite sad to me, actually. It was the very first case of the day, it was about a fight. It was about a fight in the parking lot of a church between two ladies who tangled over something that happened in choir practice that night. (laughs) You can imagine how embarrassed I was sitting out there. So what happened is one of the ladies had sang a solo the Sunday before. Uh, You know what, before I go on, I I just saw Celestine and Bernadette, our dear friends, they're down here. Would you welcome them, our friends from Rwanda who (laughs) wave at us. There you go. Good. Always good to have you guys. Always good to have you. So I, I'm sitting on this jury panel, and uh, the, the, the story is they, they were in choir practice on a Wednesday night. One lady had sang a solo the week before. Another lady in the choir made a disparaging remark about her solo, and they literally took it outside. I mean, they did. These two ladies ended up in the church parking lot, and uh, when the policewoman came on the scene who was there as a, as a witness to what took place, who eventually had to give this lady a ticket, I think it was for disturbing the peace, I don't remember exactly, but she was saying more than the uh, hymnal had recorded in it, I'm sure, words that were not used there, or in the Sunday school lesson, there was hair pulling gone on, uh, a whole lot of uh, usage of these words, and finally she turned on the policewoman and went ballistic on her. And I thought, this is absolutely insane. In fact, what I remembered is Martin Luther's comment during the Reformation. He had a squabble within his church choir and disbanded it for a while. He said, when Satan fell, he landed in the choir loft. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons when I choirs at TBC, I sat on that jury panel and said, we're never going to have, we got enough issues, we're not going to deal with that issue at all. But if you've ever sat on a jury, John chapter 5 is that. John chapter 5 is in the context of a trial. And as we look at that, we're going to see that uh, there's a crime, there's an indictment, there's a defense, and there are witnesses called. And the setting is much like that, if you will. It's, it's like sitting on a jury and observing what's going to happen. And not only that, but I think all of John is that way. When we look at John's purpose in John 20, he said, I've written these things in order to make you believe that Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah, the Christ, and that believing you may have life in his name. And John is laying out a defense, if you will, as to who Jesus is. He's flipping everything on the Jewish people and he's saying, you've got to make a decision. But anyway, uh, we'll come to that a little later. In John chapter 5, Jesus is on trial. 
Dave Tate preached last week, and he did a great job talking about the specific crime that Jesus was accused of. I've entitled this sermon, Confrontation. So uh, at the Pool of Bethesda, there were many people who desired to be healed. There was a superstition about the waters of Bethesda, and so they would gather there. Included there was a man, if you look at John 5, 5, who had been an invalid for 38 years. And so you've got a guy who can't get to the water. Jesus asks him a question, do you want to be healed? And his answer is, there's nobody to take me there. When I try to get there, people jump in front of me. And so I haven't been healed. And, and so Jesus heals a man right there in the spot. You remember that story from last week? And so it's an amazing, amazing thing that takes place. The problem is Jesus did the right thing, but he did it on the wrong day. He demonstrated care and compassion. We did it on the wrong day. In fact, last week, if you're with us, Dave Tate said you can hear the drama. If this was a movie that the music would get intense in verse 9. Immediately, the man became well, picked up his pallet, began to walk, and it was a Sabbath on that day. If this were L.A. law, it would be wrapped up in 60 minutes, right? But this is not a made-for-TV show. This is actual life. And what's going to happen is this trial is going to go on this day, but it's actually going to go on for many more months before Jesus is truly tried and found guilty and crucified. The Jewish leaders have accused Jesus of breaking the law. Now, the problem is that the, 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 the crime here is not a murder or a mugging. It's not a rape or a robbery. It's actually a healing. It's actually a miracle. Nobody gets mugged, nobody gets murdered, nobody gets raped, nobody gets robbed. It's really a miracle that takes place, and the crime is it's done on the wrong day. See, the Sabbath, as Dave pointed out last week, had not become a day of rest for the Jewish people. It had become a day of burden. And when Moses said, uh, wrote down Ten Commandments given by God, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, they wanted to define what that was. And so uh, they had all these corollary laws that they added, not biblical law, but, uh, but laws that they had added so that they would know that they were doing the right things on that day. Including that was not carrying a burden. Well, when Jesus healed this man, he picked up his mat and he walked away. So that was considered carrying a burden. Now, if your friend had been in a wheelchair for 38 years or been in a mat for 38 years or had some disease for maybe five years or more, and all of a sudden they were healed, you would be high-fiving, celebrating, and hopefully giving God glory, right? Or maybe if you were that guy who had been that way for 38 years, maybe you'd be jumping around and maybe you'd be doing that. But there's no evidence in the scriptures from anybody doing that. In fact, what happens is that the Jewish leaders pull out their rule book and they said, you violated our rules. Not, not the biblical law, but our rules. You violated the rules of the Sabbath. And because of that, it says they want to kill him. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? This confrontation takes place over a miracle. Nobody's rejoicing. Nobody's excited. Even this man, it's quite interesting, he kind of throws Jesus under the bus, if you will. I mean, look at what happens in John chapter 5. He's healed. Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. And then in verse 12, they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? And it was he who healed, did not know, the one who was healed didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away. He didn't even know who it was that healed him. I mean, this man had an element of faith in believing that Jesus, when he said, pick up your mat, he picked up his mat and went. But but there's no faith in Christ as his Messiah or Savior. There's no faith being exercised here. By the way, in our day and age, health and wealth theology would teach you have to exercise X amount of faith to, in, to be healed. This guy didn't have any faith to be healed. I, I mean, Jesus just walks up and says, pick up your mat and go. The faith was, I guess, listening to the words of Christ, but he never places his faith in Christ as far as we can see. So after they find Jesus in the temple, verse 14, and he tells a guy, he said, uh, don't sin anymore or worse things will happen to you. So the man goes away and they begin persecuting Jesus in verse 16 because he healed on the Sabbath. So the crime is healing on the Sabbath. Jesus takes a step further. 
Jesus takes a step further. So they say the problem here is you did a good thing, but you did it on the wrong day. By the way, when God created the universe, he rested on the seventh day, but he didn't stop caring and showing compassion. We never stop caring and showing compassion. That's what Christ does on that day. So the crime is pretty evident. But then Jesus adds to it. He says, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. What is Jesus saying there? Well, Jesus is saying, hey, the father is working, and when the father works, I work. Jesus is saying, I, I, I'm, I'm the same as the Father. The Father's activity is my activity. My activity is the Father's activity. When the Father's working, I'm working. When the Father's doing something, I'm doing something. I don't know that that audience heard all of that because when Jesus said, my Father, they probably stopped right there. See, Jewish people rarely referred to God as my Father. That was much too personal, much too intimate. They, they might say, my Father, with a qualifier, as Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer, my Father who art in heaven. Or they might say, my father and Jehovah or something, but just to call him my father was an intimate claim. Jesus claiming an intimate relationship with the father, and he's saying, the work that he does is the work that I do. So the indictment is found in the next verse. They understood exactly what Jesus is doing. So you're in a courtroom right now. The crime is laid out before you. You're the jury. Here's the crime. Jesus has worked on the Sabbath. He's had this guy pick up his burden. They've pulled out their whistles and, and they've said, he's guilty, he's wrong. And not only that, but now they recognize when he says this, something greater has happened because look at verse 18. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. It's the first time it's mentioned that they want to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Wow. Now, we have moved from just breaking the Sabbath to having his life on the line. Because when you claim to be God, that's called blasphemy, and the, and the, and the punishment for blasphemy was death. And so what they recognize is when Jesus makes this statement, the statement you saw before you, the statement in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working, what they recognize, he's saying, I, I am just like the father. I work like the Father is, I do it as. Make no mistake about it, the Jewish leaders fully understood Jesus was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be equal to the Father. There's no mistake about it. There are groups today, and they would say Jesus never claimed to be God, or Jesus is not deity. There are groups that say Jesus never claimed to be God. Nothing can be further from the truth. That they understood that right here. In fact, all you got to do is go a little further in John, John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Does that sound like a claim to be God? Does to me, does it to you? In fact, a little later on in John 14, he says, he has seen me, he has seen the Father. So that, that's pretty much a claim to be God. So when, when you're out there, we've got college students here, we've got other, many of us trafficking in our community and ministering to those that uh, may be skeptics. Maybe the folks you work with, the folks in the scientific community around you or wherever you are, when they say Jesus never claimed to be God, that is not a truth. All you have to do is take him to John chapter 10 and say, well, Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. That's pretty much a claim. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it says very clearly that he was the Word that dwelt among us. And then in John chapter 14, he has seen me, seen the Father, claims of deity throughout. There are also groups that say, well, he claimed to be God, but he really wasn't. He claimed to be God, but he really wasn't. That's what's happening in the first century. They recognized his claim. That's why he wanted to kill him. But he really wasn't. 
All you've got to do is Google that up. We call it the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. So all you Google up is uh, groups that, faith groups that reject the Trinity. I Google it up, printed it off. So if you grew up in Mormonism, Latter-day Saints, you know that the teaching there is Jesus is God's literal, literal son. He's separate from the Father. He's the elder brother of men. If you grew up Jehovah's Witness, you know that the claim there is Jehovah is one person and Jesus was, was, is not God, but a creation of Jehovah. If you grew up Christian science, you know that they say uh, Jesus it was not the true son of God and not God. If you grew up in Armstrong or Herbert Armstrong, they deny the Trinity. If you grew up as a Christadelphian, and there are groups of those here, they believe God is one indivisible, not three distinct persons, and deny the divinity of Jesus. If you grew up in the Unitarian Church or the Unity School of Christianity or Scientology, each of those groups, each of those groups either claim that Jesus was not God or deny that he claimed to be God. Look at the scriptures, that's not what it says. Jesus very clearly claims to be God. So now the proof of burden is upon him. The proof of burden. We're in a courtroom. Somebody has stated, here's the crime. The crime is this man claims to be God. He says he's equal to the Father. That's the indictment. That's the indictment. He claims to be God. So now Jesus acts in his own defense. He gives five reasons, five reasons, five claims, if you will, how he's equal with God, why he is deity. And if you run across folks that say, well, or maybe you're wondering, well, how do I know that he is indeed God in the flesh? Here we go. Five claims of deity by Jesus, his defense, if you will. Claim number one, I'm equal to the Father. His first claim is I'm equal to the Father. We see it. They understand what he's saying. My father's working until now. I am working. They say he's claiming to be equal to God. And then look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the things that these things that the son does in like manner. He says, whatever the father does, the son does. We are the same. It's his first line of defense. Whatever the father does, that's what the son does. We are equal in relationship. We are co-equal. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. He's saying, we, if you read those verses carefully, he's saying we are distinct, but we are co-equal. We, we are co-equal, but yet we are distinct. We've looked at this a few times over the past couple of years. We did a series two summers ago called, summers ago called Jesus Is. And we talked about uh, what that was, how Jesus is. And we saw in Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. We saw that. The word image there, icon, is the word. Jesus is the icon. He is the very thing. If we had a ring, a signet ring, and we placed that in wax, you would see the very image of that ring. That, that's the concept that's being used. And so if we were to take a piece of clay and we were to stick a stamp in it, the stamp we pulled out would be embedded in that clay. And that's exactly what he's saying here. I am the image of the invisible God. Then later on in Hebrews, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He says, I am exactly like the father is not physically, but certainly in his nature. 
When I preached that a couple of years ago, two summers ago, I talked about Jesus is God's, Jesus is the Father's doppelganger. Do you remember that? How many of you are here when we did the doppelganger sermon? So I told you I didn't know what a doppelganger was until we were on vacation uh, two and a half years ago. We're at the Grand Canyon. Uh, One thing's on my bucket list. And there was a guy standing over there and he looked just like a dear friend of mine from Dallas Seminary. He ran Pineco for a lot of years. I get ready to tap him on the shoulder, got right next to him. My hand was in midair. He turned and looked at me and it wasn't my buddy. So I said, uh, may I take your picture? Because you look like a friend of mine. I'm married, my wife is over there. I just don't take pictures of strange men. I want to assure him of that. And uh, so he, I said, I've got a friend who looks just like you. I thought it was him. That's why I was going to tap you on the shoulder. And he said, sure. So I sent my picture to Dan, my buddy, and Tyler. And uh, he said, I always wonder if I had a doppelganger. And I didn't know what that word meant. It's a lookalike, right? You remember that? Somebody that looks just like somebody else. Jesus is God the Father's doppelganger. He looks just like him. Do you have a doppelganger? People look like you? Uh, I showed you some pictures. These are new ones, actually. So here's a doppelganger for you. <laughs> Pretty good, isn't it? There's another one for you right there. Richard Brunson. There's one for you. It's just like him. And then there's that one right there. Now, those are physical images, uh, those, that, that, but you get the point. I, I'm going to take that off because you won't hear another word I say, okay? <laughs> what Jesus is saying is, I am equal to the Father, but distinct. I'm different than. And that's what the Trinity is all about. But Jesus is defending his deity. They've said, you're equal with the Father. He said, indeed I am. Claim number one is, I am equal because I do the same work that he does. Claim number two, I am the giver of life. If you look at the next verse, if you look at uh, the next verse that's given there, uh, verse number, I've got to find my notes here, verse number 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. So who do he wish to give life to? He gave life to Lazarus, who was dead. He gave life to the widow, Nain's son, who was dead. He gave life to Jairus' daughter, who was dead. Many of you are medical, and you do great work, but you can't bring a dead person to life. It's not going to happen. But Jesus can, and approves his deity. So he says, I am indeed deity, I am indeed God, I am indeed who I claim to be, first of all, because I do the work of the Father, I'm equal to the Father. Secondly, because I am the giver of life. Thirdly, because I am the final judge. If you look at the next verse, beginning in in verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead, I'm sorry, verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given judgment to the Son. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come in the judgment. Jesus says, I am the final judge. Other scriptures bear that out. When Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people to testify that Jesus is the one who got appointed as judge of the living and dead. So God the Father has given Jesus the Son the privilege of judging. Only God can judge. And we read the same thing spoken by Paul to Timothy in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. God the Father has given the right to judge to God the Son. And Jesus says, I'm who I claim to be. I am God in the flesh. I am deity. First of all, I'm equal to God. I'm the giver of life and I am the final judge. Fourthly, he says, his fourth claim to show who he is is I will raise the dead. In John, in John chapter 5, beginning in the next verse, it says in verse 26, for just as a father has, given, has life in himself, even so he gave life to the son. Uh, he gave to the son also to have life in himself and he will give him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man, a reference back to Daniel. 
And so he's saying, I am the one who gives us life, gives us eternal, and I am the one who is the judge, not only that, I, I am the one who will raise the dead. If you look at verse 28, do not marvel an hour's coming when all the tombs shall hear my voice and they shall come forth. I am the one who will resurrect the dead, the final resurrection. Claim number five, I always do the will of the Father. Whatever the Father asks me to do, I do. I'm co-equal to, but distinct from. So we're in a, we're in a courtroom. Jesus is on trial. He claimed to be God. That's the indictment. The initial crime was healing on the Sabbath. Further, it's blasphemy. And he stands before him and says, I am who I claim to be. I am God in the flesh. I'm equal to the Father. I do his work. I'm the giver of life. I'm the judge. I'm the one who will resurrect at the end. And I always do the will of the Father. I am who I claim to be. So after you have a defense given, what do you do next? You call witnesses, right? You call witnesses. And so that's what Jesus does next. By by the way, Matt uh, Carter at Austin Stone, he summarizes these five claims by saying this. He said, Jesus does, to show that he's deity, Jesus does only what God can do. Jesus receives honor that only God deserves. There's a verse in there that talks about how he's honored like the Father's honored. And Jesus has power that only God can claim. When you look at those five claims, he lumps them in these three categories. Jesus does only what God can do, so he must be God in the flesh. Jesus receives honor only God deserves. Jesus has power that only God can claim. So now you call some witnesses. You call witnesses. And so imagine this is a courtroom. Who are you going to put in the witness stand first? You're Jesus. You're, you're the one who's trying this case. It's your case. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to it? Well, he knew the law in the Old Testament. He knew that his testimony wouldn't be enough. And so if you look at verse 31, it says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. By the way, the word witness, I'm here at the end of the chapter, occurs eight different times. It occurs eight times. He's calling witnesses to the witness stand. He knew that if just his testimony wouldn't be enough because these are students of the Old Testament law. They knew he had to have more than one witness, and that witness can be himself. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they've committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the law. That's not their interpretation law. That's the law. You had to have two or three witnesses, depending on the case. And so Jesus, knowing that, speaks out in verse 31 and says, hey, I know if I alone bear witness, it's not true. So let me call some witnesses to stand. Witness number one, John the Baptist. Let's have John the Baptist testify. Verse 32. There's another one who bears witness of me, and I know the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent John, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from a man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. So Jesus is saying, hey, John the Baptist on the stand. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, Jesus come to be baptized, what were John's words? Behold whom? Behold the Lamb of God who... That's John the Baptist's witness. 
John the Baptist is light in the desert, and you are attracted to that light like, a, like bugs are attracted to that thing you've got hanging in your backyard that zaps them. You are attracted like that. He gave witness of who I was. You heard him give witness. You heard him do that. Secondly, on the witness stand are my works. If you look at the next verse, it says, but the witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I do bear witness of me. The word witness occurs twice in that verse. What were the works Jesus had done? He had turned water into wine. He had healed a royal official son. They were just talking to the man who hadn't walked in 38 years. And he says, look at my works. I do the works of the Messiah. I I give sight to the blind, I heal the lame, I I do the things that only Messiah can do. My works proclaim who I am. And so witness number two on the stand are his works. Witness number one, John the Baptist. Witness number two, his works. Witness number three, God the Father. He he says, if that's not enough, if if John the Baptist is enough and my works are not enough, look, listen to the Father, verse 37. And the Father who sent me, who has borne witness of me, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Stop right there. Can you see, can you see their jaws tightening? Can you see their fists clenching? Can you see their faces getting red? I mean, he's, he's already said, he's already said that they've rejected the light. He said, I say these things. Look at the verse 34. I'm telling you this so you can be saved. You're lost. I mean, these were the theologians of the day. He's, a, he's given these theologians a lesson in theology that they should have understood. And he turns to them and says, hey, you don't even know the Father who sent me. Because the Father testifies of me. The Father who sent me has borne witness of me. And, and if you believed him, you would believe me. Not only that, you, the students of the scriptures who memorize the scripture, who know the law inside and out, who spend all your hours every day pouring over the scriptures and your interpretation to the scripture, if you were really a student of the scripture and saw with enlightened eyes, you would recognize the scriptures bear witness of me. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it's these that bear witness of me. The scriptures should teach you of me. Everything in the law points to me. Everything you hear and see points to me. I mean, when you read the scriptures, when you read about a covering for Adam and Eve, there was a sacrifice being made. That's me. When you see Abraham climbing the mountain with Isaac and you see Jehovah Jireh, God providing an atonement, one to take, my, take his place, that's me. When, when you see the ark saving uh, Noah and his family, Peter would say, That's the, just as that ark provided salvation, Jesus is the ark who provides salvation. It's all a portrait of Jesus throughout Genesis. Then you go to Passover, and you see the blood of the goat smeared on the post and the Passover angel, the angel of death passing over. He said, that's me. And if you look at the sacrifices, the, the, the thank offering, the guilt offering, the sin offering, all of those point to Jesus. If you read the scriptures rightly, you would know they're talking about me. And you go to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant, if you read the scriptures, you would know it was all about me. John the Baptist is a witness. My works are a witness. The Father's a witness. The scriptures are a witness. Now, who's the hero of the Jewish leaders? I mean, who is the person that they revered more than anybody else in the Old Testament? Moses, the final witness. And this is when 
they really wanted to kill Jesus. Do not think, verse 45, that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Your hope is in Moses and his law. If you believe Moses, you'd believe in me. For Moses wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, why are you going to believe my words? Moses is the one who wrote all those things I just talked about in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Moses also in Deuteronomy chapter 18, read it. He talked about this great prophet who would be like him. And then when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3, he says Jesus is the great prophet that Moses talked about. And so here is Jesus on trial, claiming to be God. And he says, you're right. I'm making that claim. I do the works of the Father. I I give life. I'm a judge. I bring about resurrection. And I do his will. And you don't have to get it on my testimony alone. But there's John the Baptist, the works I've done, the Father himself, the Scriptures, and Moses. So what's the verdict? Pretty interesting what happens here. You see, the evidence is beyond a shadow of a doubt. The witnesses are beyond credible. But they still reject him. Danny, our executive pastor, and I had a long conversation about this passage, and he told me this is jury nullification, a great example of jury nullification. Now, I had no idea what jury nullification was. How many of you know what jury nullification is? So we get about a dozen attorneys out there. You guys know what that is. I'd never heard of it, okay? Never heard of jury nullification. So jury nullification, a jury is presented with all the facts, and it's pretty obvious that that person is guilty, but out of passion either for that person or for a cause, they choose to find that person not guilty. I would say O.J. Simpson probably falls in that category from my non-professional opinion. But all the facts line up. The evidence is very clear. But the jury says not guilty. You know what happens here? Bev and I were traveling yesterday and she said that we were going over my sermon. Interesting, the people around us looking at us. I mean, here we are going through a sermon on a plane yesterday and She said, what's happening here is an innocent man is found guilty, so guilty people can be found innocent. And she's right. That's what's happening here. Innocent man's found guilty so that guilty people can be found innocent. So here's the jury nullification. See if I get this right. I'm I'm not sure. So what, what happens is they look at all the evidence, and it's pretty clear. He should be guilty of being God. But they said, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're claiming to be something you're not. So we're going to kill you. So what do we do with all this? We'll give you three applications and we'll go home. Because it's very clear in this passage that Jesus is claiming to be equal to God. Three applications. Application number one. You cannot walk out of this place and say that Jesus was a great moral teacher or a good prophet. I've got a friend of another religion, they call Jesus a good prophet. You can't call him that. You can't call him a great moral teacher. C.S. Lewis wrote about something called the trilemma. He said either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He said either he was a liar. He knew he was speaking something that was not true and deceived people to believe it and they died for it. 
He was a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but he claimed to be God. And he deceived a lot of people and all these disciples and people down through the centuries and persecuted and died for it. So he's a liar. You can't call somebody who lies and has people die for him a good teacher, a good moral man, or a good prophet. He's not. Or he's a lunatic. C.S. Lewis says, when people walk around claiming to be God, we have a place for people like that. I mean, if you walk around saying, I can resurrect dead people, you walk around saying, I am the final judge. You walk around saying, I am the same as the Father. You walk around saying, he has seen me, seen the Father. You're a lunatic. That's what Lewis says. Or else he's a Lord. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am who I claim to be. That's me. Now, let's say you arrive at the conclusion that he is Lord and who he claimed to be. You've got a choice to make, don't you? It's not enough just to know those truths. That's intellectual knowledge. John says, I've written these things in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, the Son of God. From the first sermon on, we talked about belief. I've used a stool. Actually, I used a different stool. I hope this stool works for the illustration. I've never sat on it before. But we said, I can talk about that. I believe that stool will hold me up. I believe it. But true belief takes place when I do this. That's belief. See, for some of you, you know the facts. You know that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He came and offered his life on your behalf. But you have never taken the step of faith to actually put your trust in him. And I'm asking you to do that this morning. Second application. If you know him as Savior, you have to worship him each day. Somebody who would give his life as an innocent man on behalf of guilty people, you would worship him. If somebody ran into your house and it was on fire and they pulled you out and saved your life, you would give them honor. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, God in the flesh, willingly gave his life. How could we not worship him? And thirdly, Know him as Lord for the forgiveness of your sins. Worship him as God. Thirdly, how can we keep that to ourselves? When I played that Kathy Lee Gifford clip two weeks ago, if you were here, she said, uh, if you had the cure for cancer, you wouldn't keep it to yourself. We have the cure for the malignancy of the soul. How can we dare keep it to ourselves? When's the last time you spoke openly of your Savior? Last time you shared Christ with someone? Last time you talked about him? Last time you shared with a friend, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you what he has to offer to you. Because that's the cure for the malignancy of the soul. We have the privilege. An old hymn's called Rescue the Perishing. We have the privilege to be part of that. If you've been at TBC for a while, you know the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic occurred about 10 years ago. I get absorbed in that story, read three books about it, and I was fascinated especially with one of the stories there. I haven't told this story in a long time, but I did tell it a couple of times several years ago. It's a story of lifeboat number 14. You can chase it down. See, when the Titanic hit that iceberg and began to sink, there were a number of lifeboats, and most of those lifeboats were released only half-filled because people realized the ship was going down quickly if they didn't get in the lifeboats, and they would go down with the ship and drown. So you had lifeboats that hit the water. Some were full, but not many. Most were half-empty, maybe three-quarters full. But, but there was space for a lot of people left in lifeboats. But the problem is the people on the lifeboats knew two things. They knew if they stayed next to the ship, that they would be sucked down when the ship went under, so they began to row away. 
Secondly, they began to hear cries of desperation from people that were dying of hypothermia or drowning. They heard those cries echoing through the night off of the water of the North Atlantic, the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. Dozens of boats in the water. Only lifeboat number 14 went back. Everybody else rode away. Interviewed afterwards, many said, we're afraid if we went back to where all the people were drowning, we'd be swamped and we'd drown with them. Lifeboat number 14 rode back where the people were. And they rescued the parishes. How can we keep to ourselves the greatest news the world can have? That Jesus died to rescue the perishing. So we row into a world, not away from the world. We row into a world that needs our Savior. And we openly and boldly speak of him. Amen? So Father, this morning, as we go our way, help us to be bold and courageous talk about our Savior. Help us to be those that worship, not just on Sundays, but every day. And if you're here today and you're not sure, maybe you've known this story, you know who Jesus is, you have it confirmed through the claims he made and the witnesses that we've just looked at. But you're not sure if you trusted Christ as your Savior. I invite you today just to pray with me. Lord Jesus, I want to know with certainty that you're my Savior. I see you're indeed God in the flesh. I know that sacrifice was made for guilty people like me to become innocent. Would you forgive me? My friends, if you prayed that prayer, the Savior has forgiven you. And you can have certainty. John writes later in 1 John, I've written these things, or you may know, you may know that you have eternal life. And I'd love to talk with you about that decision you just made. And for each of us, God, help us to boldly proclaim the good news of who our Savior is and what he's done. We pray in his name. Amen.